the United States produces some rare earths, and for years, for decades, we were the, the largest supplier, the largest producer and, and processor in the world. But uh, we have lost that separations and processing capability, as well as a lot of the metallurgy. And China has really done, really done a good job by, you know, concentrating all of that with a lot of other manufacturing in China. And so, you know, to have uh, have greater security overall, we would like to see more, you know, a, a more diverse supply chain than what it is currently. Is the United States positioning itself to lead long-term as the global energy mix continues to transition? Fossil fuels have shaped the geopolitical map for the last two centuries, but with the rapid deployment of renewables, that map is starting to shift. In this episode, we speak to Daniel Simmons, Assistant Secretary for the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy at the DOE, about how the U.S. Energy Department is thinking about the intersection of geopolitics and clean tech and about investing in the next generation of energy solutions. This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I am Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media, and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. So as I noted, this episode is going to look closely at the Department of Energy. We're going to find out how the agency is deploying capital to support clean energy innovation under President Trump, and how the agency is defining clean energy innovation under President Trump. In a moment, you'll hear our interview with Daniel Simmons, Assistant Secretary for the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy at the DOE. And then we're going to hear from Matt Myers, Vice President of EarthX Capital. He's just launched a new bipartisan initiative with the DOE's Office of Technology Transitions to address commercialization barriers for clean tech solutions. We'll learn more about it. But first, we couldn't ignore the latest political news. So I'm here with my co-hosts, Brandon and Shane, to touch on the latest Democratic debate and a new $10 billion commitment from Jeff Bezos to support climate action. Brandon Hurlbut is our Democrat. He's a partner at Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. And Shane Skelton is our Republican partner at S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Okay, guys, what are your thoughts on the latest Democratic debate? For anyone who watched, it was a bloodbath for Bloomberg. Uh, Brandon, what do you think? Well, you know, Julie, I've mentioned on this show in the past that I'm a boxer. Yes. And uh, that was there were some punches thrown last night. <laughs> Shane, I know you aren't voting in the Democratic primary, but what did you make of this? Yeah, I'm like, I, I thought it was crazy. This is the first Democratic debate I've really paid attention to. It's really tough with like 16 people on the stage. I chewed it more as like a good comedy, a good laugh for a bed. But last night was was intense. And I thought that the Democratic Party as a whole, and I really want to hear what Brandon has to say here, did themselves a great disservice. I mean, I think uh, I don't remember the quote, so I'm not going to say it verbatim. But I think when Michael Bloomberg said, you know, if you, if anyone listening to this conversation can't possibly take it seriously and, and Donald Trump is the winner here, that was sort of the sentiment that I felt. And I just didn't get why there was so much vitriol. I mean, I saw Klobuchar and Buttigieg uh, going at it. And, and I, I think I saw her refuse to shake his hand when he tried after the debate. Bloomberg was being ridiculed for being rich. And really, all I've heard about Michael Bloomberg since he's been mayor of New York is that he's giving away money to promote causes that these people allegedly care about, like stopping gun violence and reducing carbon emissions and shutting down coal plants. So I, I'm just stunned. I, I, don't, I don't even know what I saw, and I need Brandon to digest it for me. 
this is not unusual. This happens in every sort of campaign cycle in a contested primary. This happened in the 2016 primary process for the Republicans. I mean, there was a lot of vitriol in that primary process between Cruz and Rubio and Trump and Christie, and Trump still won the general election. So in the 2008 uh, campaign that I worked on for Barack Obama, our primary with Hillary Clinton was got very intense. There was a lot of sharp, you know, uh, punches thrown uh, in that debate. So, so this is not unusual. This is we're at a time where big elections are coming with Super Tuesday two weeks away. The candidates are trying to draw this contrast between themselves, and so I think this is a natural phase of the primary process. But is there anything, Brandon, inherently bad about having money? Now, it would be one thing if, if Bloomberg had money because he cheated the system. He cheated the government. He used his money to do nefarious things. But they treated him like he was an awful person just for having earned wealth. And I, I don't get that. Well, I think they were trying to, again, draw these contrasts that he was a Republican. The, many of the attacks were on his policies, stop and frisk and redlining. Uh, there was a debate, you know, led by Elizabeth Warren about uh, his treatment of women. Uh, and so this is all, you know, part of the campaign. I was very happy to see that the that climate change played a major part of the debate last night. There was a whole you know section of the debate dedicated to it. And this if you're a climate change advocate like me, this is your dream. Having every presidential camp, you know, candidate up there with an ambitious plan on climate, you know, trying to outdo each other on it. And I was really proud, you know, everyone knows that listens to this podcast that I'm a supporter of Senator Warren. I was really proud of her comments about environmental justice. She brought that into the debate. It's such a critical issue. Communities of color have suffered an enormous burden of pollution. And she uh, highlighted that in her comments last night. She also talked about needing to end the filibuster, which if we want to get meaningful climate change legislation done, I think that that is uh, ne totally necessary. So, uh, but the other candidates did a good job too. I thought, you know, Pete made an important point. We got to win in 2020 to have good climate change policy. One last point about the vitriol in the, in the debate last night. The attacks that will come from Donald Trump are going to be much more lethal than anything that was said on that debate stage last night. So it is good for the Democratic candidates to learn how to deal with, with some attacks. A couple points to round this out on climate and energy. One is that both Bloomberg and Klobuchar called natural gas a transition fuel during the debate. And Bloomberg said it won't be possible to ban fracking for a while. That is a disastrous perspective to many people, a realistic perspective to others, and perhaps a combination of the two to a number of people also. But either way, it was an interesting statement from Bloomberg, given that he launched a $500 million Beyond Carbon campaign last year that will both expand the work he's funded on shutting down coal plants and, quote, stop the rush to build new gas plants. Meanwhile, just on Wednesday, the Center for Biological Diversity Action Fund updated its climate scorecard for the Democratic candidates, and it put Bloomberg and Klobuchar last. That highlights the tension, I think, around Bloomberg's legacy of funding environmental action and whether or not that's enough to win him Democrat support going forward. Finally, you know, this isn't just about the candidates. How Bloomberg fares, I think, will say a lot about where the Democratic Party sits today. Who comes out to vote in the primary and who they vote for will say a lot about where the party sits on a lot of major issues. All right. The other big thing I want to talk about is another billionaire. Um, Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon, has announced a $10 billion fund, uh, the Bezos Earth Fund, to support scientists, activists, and NGOs. Brandon, what do you think about that? I think it's great. On the Republican side, you know, with the Koch brothers and such, 
they uh, use their wealth to put it into activism. And they've had a lot of success with that. And I've always hoped that some of these tech entrepreneurs that have made incredible wealth, uh, like Jeff Bezos at Amazon, who is the richest person on the planet, that they would invest some of their wealth into solving the world's biggest problem, climate change. And so can he solve it all by himself? No, there are, the fossil fuel industry has much more combined wealth uh, that they are, you know, is a big barrier for us. But the fact that he's putting $10 billion of his own money, that I work, you know, I'm on the Board of Solutions Project, a nonprofit. We're always fundraising and struggling, you know, to to get more money into, um, you know, our our nonprofit, as many nonprofits are. My wife worked for a nonprofit, you know, that she started. They're always out there trying to, you know, fundraise and it's it's always, you know, a challenge. So to be able to have access to, you know, more funds like that, $10 billion a lot, a lot of good things can happen with that money. We do a lot at the Solutions Project with very little. So if other nonprofits can get access to, you know, some of these funds, I think great things can come out of it. I think an important distinction there is not just invest. And I think a lot of people heard that and they thought that he's going to fund technologies that will help Amazon down the line. But it truly is a grant making program. It is a, a giveaway, a donation, if you will, at least according to the limited information we have so far. There's been a lively debate on Twitter as to whether he should invest and actually support clean tech startups and, and early stage technologies and the commercialization of technologies in addition to nonprofits and activists. Uh, a lot of people weighing in on what they do with 10 billion, but nonetheless, um, a, a huge sum that could be very significant if it rolls out correctly. Shane, what was your, what was your thought on seeing the Bezos uh, money? I, mean, I think it's great. I think whenever anyone wants to <clears throat> give away any of their own money for anything productive, positive, helpful, it's a really, really good thing. Um, I, I, like you guys, I'm really curious to see, you know, sort of when he puts out RFPs, re- requests for proposal, and when, you know, we get a better sense of what specific types of grants is he trying to make. Are these, you know, like Brandon mentioned with the Koch brothers, are these sort of political actions groups? Are these project specific um, items? Um, I know we said that it looks like it's not going to be tech investments, but maybe he'll issue grants uh, rather than, you know, profit making investments to entrepreneurs. I think it's great no matter what, but I'm excited to see, you know, what exactly it turns out to be. Also, you know, interestingly, Brandon mentioned the Koch brothers and I I genuinely don't know what uh, Bezos politics are, which kind of makes it exciting. Like you don't. You know, you don't look at it and say, oh, this is some liberal billionaire or this is some conservative billionaire trying to spend their wealth to bend people to their will. I I have no idea what he believes, who he votes for, um, whether or not he gives out campaign contributions. So I think it's kind of cool that he's just saying, I'm giving out 10 billion to deal with this uh, climate change and um, and and let's do it because uh, because I don't think it's tainted then by some sort of uh, either side saying, oh, he's got an agenda here that I don't like. I hear that. I think if you ask Trump, though, uh, given that Bezos is the owner of the Washington Post, Trump would say he's got a view that he doesn't agree with. But I hear you. The The fund itself is not is not political, uh, although people would like it to be political. So that'll be very interesting. The number one recommendation from people who care about climate on the energy Twitter sphere is spend it on candidates, spend it on campaigns. And that's how he should that's how he'd have that most impact. How about uh, right? you know, Earth Fund investment into political climate, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Anyone that, got and Jeff also, Bezos's like, who number? Cares, honestly, and we talk about this all the time, but who cares 
what people on Twitter say. It's such a small subset of. But of, some of them are you know, very influential Americans. people. I look at like you know people and bringing this back to the campaign really quick or the the debate. People are like, oh, you know, Bloomberg got the least cheers and the most booze. He's not talking to the 100 people in that room. He's talking to the, you know, 70 million potential uh, voters. So I, I, I don't I don't get too worked up about immediate reactions on Twitter or elsewhere. I want to see, you know, what Jeff Bezos does. And I don't really care what the Twitter sphere thinks he should do. I don't think you can totally ignore thought leaders, but I will say that it was kind of amazing to see how quick people were to criticize the Bezos commitment. I think there's a lot of criticism, perhaps rightly aimed at how Amazon needs to do much more to reduce its carbon emissions and stop enabling the wider use of fossil fuels. But two things can be true. Bezos' $10 billion cash infusion for climate action can be good, while Amazon uh, you know, is also held accountable for reducing its environmental footprint. And with that, our cart is full, so let's check out of this conversation and deliver you our interview with Assistant Secretary Daniel Simmons. This episode is brought to you with support from EarthX, a nonprofit environmental forum that aims to educate and inspire action toward a more sustainable future. On April 23rd to the 26th in Dallas, Texas, EarthX is hosting a global gathering of exhibits, conferences, film, food, and fun, all centered on solving today's most pressing environmental challenges. But you don't have to wait until the event to get involved. Next month, EarthX is launching the EarthX League, where you can sign up for the 50 for 50 challenge and test how many actions you can take to protect the planet. Brandon and Shane, what's something you've done recently to reduce your environmental impact? I can. I got a good one. Um, I just got my uh, my house uh, that I bought uh, about a year ago it has not been upgraded at all since the 1980s. So I got a new energy efficient um, heating system. Unfortunately, I was not able to get an electric heat pump because uh, my house wasn't wired for it. But I did get an energy efficient heating system. I got my entire house uh, electricity retrofitted and all you know uh, energy efficient LED lighting. And already in the two months since I've made these investments. Not only do I love uh, what I've done and I feel good about it, but I'm saving about a hundred bucks a month on each of my electricity and my gas bill. So right. saving money, um, using less energy, and feeling pretty darn good about it. Well, as many of you know, I drive an electric vehicle, a Chevy Bolt, um, but I moved my office uh, from Santa Monica to Venice, so I now walk to work. So I'm even more carbon free. I don't than know ever. if we want to give you all the points for that. It's like, <laughs> hi, I live in Venice and I work in Venice. My life is perfect. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Good job, Brandon. I love it. Um, well, that's just sort of to level set because there will be more challenges coming your way, you guys, as we uh, try EarthX's 50 by 50 challenge on this podcast in the lead up to the EarthX conference and expo. So we'll see how well we do. And then we hope to see you, our listeners, in Dallas. If you're interested in the event, check out earthx.org for more information. Last month, I caught up with Daniel Simmons, Assistant Secretary for the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy at the DOE in Abu Dhabi. We were both there to attend the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Forum, the International Renewable Energy Agency's 10th Assembly, and other events surrounding Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week. Energy geopolitics was a central theme at these events. The world was witnessing the fallout from the U.S. killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, while conference attendees were paying extra close attention to oil prices, which were surprisingly slow to react to U.S.-Iranian tensions. But energy geopolitics isn't all about fossil fuels. 
As you'll hear referenced, Assistant Secretary Simmons and I both attended a session at the IRENA Assembly on the geopolitics of renewable energy. There, numerous prominent speakers addressed how the energy transition will alter the global distribution of power and change relations between states and potentially even create instability. Among those speakers was Francis Fannin, Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Energy Resources at the U.S. Department of State. So I started my interview with Daniel Simmons by asking how he views the intersection of clean energy and geopolitics. As a leader at EERE, how does he see clean tech influencing foreign and domestic policy? Could minerals become the new oil? And how is the U.S. staying ahead in the race to own our clean energy future? Here's what he had to say. Well, clean tech has a has an important role to play in energy security. One of the one of the areas and one of the things that uh, th- that was mentioned on the panel by a uh, by Frank Fannin from the from the State Department yesterday is that a lot of the clean tech starts with big shovels. In 2017, the World Bank put out a report on um, on an energy economy that is based on much more wind and solar, renewables, as well as batteries. And that economy is a much more minerals-intense economy, or at least an energy economy, than our, than our current kind of fossil fuel-based energy economy. And as a result, the, the administration has put a lot of emphasis on uh, critical critical materials, as well as, uh, as it came out earlier this week, some new uh, streamlining for NEPA so that we will maintain our high environmental standards in the United States, but be able to streamline the process of, of permitting so that um, it could be possible to do more minerals extraction, but not just extraction, the extraction and processing, which for some minerals, uh, especially critical minerals, the United States does not do uh, does not do much in the in the in the processing, and as a result, um, you know that that can lead to some some challenges. Uh, you mentioned NEPA there. Uh, are you? What can you do to assuage concerns that environmental reviews would be uh, looser in some way under these reforms? How how is the U.S. maintaining a high quality standard there? Well, I mean, I would uh, I would really direct you to uh, to the Council on Environmental Quality for. Uh, to really get into the ins and outs of that, that you know, NEPA is not a substantive environmental law. It is a it is it's a process law, and um, so it's it it itself does not protect environmental quality, um, but it requires a it requires a process. So um, CEQ is is going through that process, and they have this new process so that we can have streamlining um, without without the compromise of substantive environmental laws. So going back to the geopolitics element there, I heard you saying, okay, clean tech starts with shovels, as you said. And so um, I think also Assistant Secretary Fannin talked about a new group that the uh, that the administration put together to focus on extraction, Energy Resource Governance Initiative. Can you touch on that briefly for us? I, I, I can just touch on it briefly to say that this is, um, when, you, when you look at all these minerals issues, the United States is a mineral-rich country. However, um, to increase global mineral security, one of the most important things is, is to have a diversity of sources. And there, there is a diversity of countries currently producing these minerals. Um, so to, to, to strengthen their, their governance, to strengthen environmental standards throughout the world, believe that it will, it will lead to overall uh, better outcomes, um, as, as, as well as just overall more mineral security. And that's, that's, that's really the goal. 
So at the arena panel, they talked about how the the energy security map is kind of changing and who has a leg up is sort of changing based on where traditionally fossil fuels were located to now where minerals are located. Is that at all a concern how the U.S. will play in this newly reformed energy transition era where the kinds of resources you have is shifting and trade relations are shifting? And, uh, you know, how does the U.S. stay ahead in all that? Well, one of the most important ways that the U.S. stays ahead is to is to continue to have a a free market economy to have a, a an economy that is dynamic, that is growing, um, because you know as the as the shale revolution shows us, as the the dramatic drops in cost for wind and solar show us, these things were not always predicted, and we need to have an incredible amount of flexibility in our in our economy. That that is critical for the it's critical for now. It's critical for the future. Uh, that we need to continually be innovating in all areas of energy. Because we don't know where those, uh, where the where the new breakthroughs are going to come from. I mean, it could happen in areas such as hydrogen. That would be nice, but we don't get to choose, unfortunately. But we do get to choose our the the the, the areas where we place research dollars. So, um, it is a it is a challenge as you as you look around the world. It's one of the reasons uh, with with minerals and with critical minerals, cri- critical materials. Uh, and it's one of the reasons there's been an increased emphasis with this administration on on critical materials so that we can have a diversity of supply, not only for the mining, but for separations and processing, metallurgy. Um, these mi- intermediate steps for many of these minerals all run through, of especially for rare earth elements, all run through China. The United States produces some rare earths, and for years, for decades, we were the, the largest supplier, the largest producer, and... Uh, and processor in the world, but uh, we have lost that processing, uh, separations and processing capability, as well as a lot of the metallurgy. And China has really done, really done a good job by you know concentrating all of that a lot, a, a lot w- with a lot of other manufacturing in China. And so, you know, to have uh, have greater security overall, we would like to see more, you know, a, a more diverse supply chain than what it is currently. Interesting. Okay, so you mentioned also uh, R&D dollars, investment dollars. What are some of the ways that your office, the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, is investing in sort of the next generation of technologies? We talked about extraction and the minerals piece. Are you then taking that and putting those into products and funding that kind of research? Well, we're doing a... um we're doing a number of strategies. We have, as uh, as Secretary Fanna mentioned yesterday, there there is there is work internationally, and some of the work internationally occurs at, at DOE as well as the as well as the State Department to make sure that we have good international relations. And just uh, just signed a new a new agreement with Canada to work very closely with Canada, c- continuing to work with the European Union, the Japanese, the Australians, the Chileans. On, on what exactly? On on uh, critical minerals or critical materials in particular, but um, other um, other minerals as well. So there's there's the international piece, and then internally, um, our advanced manufacturing office funds the Critical Materials uh, Institute at Ames National Laboratory, and some of the work that goes on there is from the improving separations and processing of the rare earths. Because some people say, well, you know, rare earths aren't rare, and well, not necessarily. However, it is very difficult to separate them and to separate um, one rare earth from another. That that can be very challenging, um, as well as some of the techniques to do it can be, uh, well, have environmental challenges. And uh, so being able to improve the processing 
but also looking at the other end and, and reducing the amount of, say, rare earth, uh, the amount of rare earth magnets that you need to, you know, for electric motors to, to still maintain the efficiency. So reduce the amount that we need is is another strategy that, that we work on, as well as look at looking for substitutes and then for end of life and looking at, at uh, recycling. Um, so that once that, you know, once those materials are in the United States or other developed countries that we're able to recycle them efficiently, uh, that recycling can be a, can be a challenge, uh, but it is a, it's an important new area. Just last year, we, we, la- we launched a, um, a couple different programs around battery recycling, for example, one to one at Argonne National Laboratory called Resell to focus on the, the chemistry needed to recycle batteries. And then also another, another effort focused around, okay, we need to do a better job with collection with lithium ion batteries because uh, a very small percentage are currently recycled versus say lead acid batteries with lead acid batteries over 95% are recycled today. So improving. I never really, knew what, know what to do with those. I just collect them in my cupboard until I find Exactly. You could take them to Home Depot, <laughs> oh, for good. example. Good to they, know. they have collection at Home Depot. But this is exactly the problem. And the only reason that I knew that is because I'd been thinking about this issue of what do I do with a lithium-ion battery when I, when I had an extra one. And uh, I just happened to notice at Home Depot, this is not an advertisement for Home Depot, but <laughs> yeah. hey, they, they have... <laughs> They it's labeled, so I could, yeah. so you could drop it off there. So, so, <laughs> but that's exactly the challenge: is that we know exactly what to do with lead acid batteries when your when your car's battery dies. Um, with lithium ion, especially for consumer products, um, it's not obvious. Uh, you know, most people don't know, and yeah. and uh, with that with that material in the United States when and other developed countries, let's recycle it. So we're talking about energy storage. I know that just recently uh, there was an energy storage grand challenge that was launched. Can you talk a bit about that? And I know it builds off of another $158 million that uh, from the Advanced Energy Storage Initiative announced in the 2020 budget. Talk about these two programs and, and what you're trying to achieve with them. Sure thing. So the first thing that we're trying to achieve is uh, we are trying to think about energy storage holistically as broadly as as is possible. The uh, a lot of people, when we think about energy storage, people frequently talk about one thing. It's lithium-ion batteries. It's lithium-ion batteries for, like, grid-scale storage. And one of the things that we wanted to emphasize is, hey, we think that storage is really, really important. Let's not put all of our eggs in the lithium-ion basket. I mean, my office funds lithium-ion research and other battery research. So it, it isn't that we have anything against lithium-ion research. We think that it is wonderful technology. That said, we want to make sure that we are working on technologies that would be the best uh, for the for the application. Lithium ion is excellent for mobility applications because it is so light. It's excellent for uh, consumer devices again because of the you know because of its, its 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 lightness. We don't necessarily believe it is the best for all applications. Plus, we also want to consider um, you know the our building technology office and the in the office of energy efficiency and renewable energy also wants to to emphasize that when buildings are able to use energy more flexibly to the to the electric grid that might look like energy storage even though it is technically not storage if they're able to um, you know preheat pre-cool buildings if they are using the uh, if they're using energy in in a building um, you know in relation to signals from the grid if you're at, at 
periods of high demand, if they're able to reduce their consumption, that can look like a battery, even though it is not energy storage at all. And so what we are trying to do is think very holistically about energy storage because we're moving to an electric grid that is where a lot of the generation is more variable than we've had in the past. And so how can we increase the, the flexibility of the consumption? A follow-up on that, because I know you've talked in the past about the need for like grid stability and resources, the like baseload type of resources that help ensure grid stability. So does energy storage meet that demand for you? Is energy storage the, the key here? Or are you talking about other types of resources? It is It is a key. I mean, the, when, when we look at the changing electric grid, I think we have to look at, at things holistically. Um, one, energy storage is a, is a key piece of having a more reliable, resilient electric grid. We also need to, I mean, because I lead the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, we also need to ask for wind and solar, for example, to be able to produce more grid services than they have produced in the past. And in the past, it honestly has not mattered because when they're a small percentage of the grid, it doesn't, it doesn't have large impacts. As they grow, those impacts, those impacts change. And, and so now wind and solar can help produce some ancillary services for the grid. However, they need to be asked to do that. And so uh, it's, it's an important area of research for us so that you know, as, as we move to a grid that is more variable, that we're also uh, looking at ways to make the grid more reliable and resilient um, at, the, at the same time. Because if we don't, it, I mean, we could have real challenges with the grid, but that also then um, hurts the opportunities for wind and solar in the, in the future, for example. How so? Well, as in if, if we were to, to have like a lot of blackouts, um, people would be turned off very quickly about, that, that were caused by wind and solar, for example. Sure. People would be turned off very quickly. However, if, we're, if the grid continues to be stable and reliable as it, as it has been, then, uh, then, then people are very supportive of adding you know, resources uh, such as wind and solar to the grid. So of what you know of the current state of the renewables, wind and solar established industries, and now where we're going with energy storage, do you think that the U.S. could see high levels of renewable uh, deployment? So 20, 30, you know, people are calling for 50 and above. Do you see that being technologically feasible one day? So this is, uh, it's, this is an important area of research for us is to, to figure out how to enable that. Um, because there are there are challenges and there are technological challenges when we get to high penetrations of renewables, I have uh, I, I have a lot of confidence in uh, in the in the work being done by by researchers to achieve you know high uh, penetration of renewables. Um, what that looks like, I don't know, and I think it is it is critical as this happens that we keep an eye on the keep an eye on the prize of energy affordability uh, that. You know, one of the one of the challenges that we have seen on the electric grid is that we have low cost, a lot of new low cost generation um, coming onto the grid, low cost wind, low cost solar, low cost natural gas, but we've not seen lower lower electricity rates, and that's that is somewhat concerning because, like at the end of the day, what matters is what consumers are paying. Um, for that could for also electricity. be grid upgrades and other types of it, things. It, it it can be, yeah. and I'm and. Um, I, I'm, I'm not, the, the, I'm, I'm not blaming anyone for, I, I'm, I'm just noting that this is, this has been the trend and, uh, you know, that it is, uh, and in areas that we have, because there is, I believe a lot of promise to help lower overall electricity rates through the use of low cost generating resources. I mean, that only, that only makes, you know, 
that would seem to make sense, and I believe it makes sense. However, it's not something that we've necessarily seen so far. And so what do we need to do to, uh, you know, to, to really reap those benefits, I think, is, I think is important. I'm going to ask you a blunt question, if I may. So we host a bipartisan podcast, and in this partisan era, it feels like uh, some people think that the Republican Party in the U.S. is just not supportive of clean tech solutions or climate action, uh, certainly not the climate part, but even supporting clean energy overall. What would you say to those critics? Do you think that this administration and the Republican Party has done a good job of supporting these technologies, even though that's maybe not getting as much news? Sure. Uh, well, I would start with the uh, the... I would start with the budget for my office. So um, in the last three years, the budget for the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy has increased 40%. That is, uh, well, it's $800 million. That is a, that, that is a lot of money. Uh, it's more than the Trump administration was initially budgeting and then Congress yes. plussed it up increasingly. And, uh, and those, are, those appropriations bills the president signed and you know, is, it, it, is our, it is our job to execute on that. The, and you know, one of the interesting dynamics there is that uh, the House mark for my office was uh, 2.6 billion dollars in the most recent uh, uh, for FY uh, for FY20. The Senate mark, controlled by Republicans, was higher than the House mark. And I think that what that shows, and then when they conference, they they arrived at 2.8 billion, which was you know essentially the Senate mark. What that shows is that there is bipartisan support for. Uh, for renewable energy, for these advanced technologies, for advanced manufacturing, um, that it is, you know, one key is that one thing that we need for the future is continued energy innovation, that energy innovation has been a, has been a key part of the economy in the past, will continue to be a key part of the, of growing the economy in the future. Um, and uh, you know, towards that, I, I think that's probably the best thing that I could tell people. Um, in, in terms of that there is just a lot of bipartisan support when you look at, you know, when, well, in particular for funding for my office. So. It has been a really amazing to see how that has increased. I think, yeah, in the latest bill, you said it was 2.8 in the most recent yes. spending bill and uh, 2.6 or so in the one previous to that. Uh, previous was 2.4. Last, 2 fiscal, okay. last fiscal year was 2.4 billion. This fiscal year, tw FY20 is, is 2.8 billion. So why do you think Congress is making this such a priority? I know you mentioned innovation is key, but how is this happening? Why, no, why are they making this a priority? Well, I mean, um, the, I, I think from the, re, from the Republican side, there is a, there is, um, they want to stress energy innovation. They, the, what we, we've, I think the people look at what has happened in the energy industry over the past 10, 15 years, for example, and what that what that what we've seen is the results of innovation, the innovation around natural gas and, and oil production in the United States for so that uh, so that the United States is now the world's leader in, in oil and natural gas production. That is because of new technology. I mean, that is that is because of hydraulic fracturing, directional drilling and and, and that we have a lower, dramatically lower wind and solar cost. And again, that is a result of of technology on the front end and then on scaling, um, but really you need to get the the technology in the beginning so that those so that those technologies can be um, really start to get deployed and as we've seen the costs have greatly come down um, and then uh, continuing innovation around energy efficiency that energy efficiency is uh, is is important to continue to have. Uh, 
because it increases the efficiency of of people's businesses. It makes your you know saves in, money in, 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 your, in, in your home. It saves yeah. you money. It uh, so that there continues there will always be value to energy efficiency. And so that innovation and continuing to grow that innovation is I I think the the reason that you see such support for uh, the Office of Energy Efficiency Renewable Energy. Do you think the uh, geopolitics angle is part of that and keeping up American competitiveness? I. Um, I certainly think so. Uh, the United States has always been a leader in technology, um, especially, well, in particular with these kind of, uh, these technologies. Uh, just earlier this year, uh, two people won the Nobel Prize. Well, there were three that won the Nobel Prize for, for chemistry for lithium-ion battery technology. Two of them have been funded by the Department of Energy for years, um, Stan Whittingham and uh, John Goodenough. And uh, this is, this is a, an excellent uh, this is an excellent example of the outcome of research that's been funded by the department. Um, but it also highlights then the challenge because while we have been leaders, the U.S. has been, uh, along with Japan in this case, world leaders in the technology and in like this, uh, you know, providing this information to the, this information, this knowledge to the world, the United States hasn't necessarily captured the manufacturing of that, of, of those technologies. We manufacture lithium ion batteries in the United States, but if you look at say, I mean, China is by far and away the world leader. And so that is something with, for the Trump administration that is a kind of an, an area to work on to think about, okay, how do we have more of that manufacturing in the United States, given that we have you know, been some of the real thought leaders? And so as we look to next generation technologies, how do we have, what, is, what enables more manufacturing given that, you know, give, given just the knowledge um, and the knowledge base that we have? Because, you know, as we want to, to get to not only next generation, the generation beyond that, it's very helpful if that if the manufacturing is also nearby. Yeah, I think the idea of having more U.S. green technology manufacturing, you know, on home soil that resonates, I think, across the board with a lot of with, people. W- with without a doubt, and the sector is incredibly competitive, um, so it it will always be a challenge. Uh, but you know, at the, the having a having an emphasis on a strong science, strong research, you know, will will definitely position the United States to to always be a player in that area. One quick one on batteries. The, the Congress did not pass an energy storage tax credit in the most recent spending bill. So when it comes to the deployment of these technologies, I know you work on the R&D side, but do you also think that there needs to be that kind of policy in place to see these technologies put into the field? I will. I'll refer you to the uh, to, to the tax experts on that one. Okay. So because I'm, I'm just trying to create the link between you know obviously the research side and then deployment and how do these mm-hmm. all connect? Um, well, and l- l- let me say one thing about that. One of the things that we are trying to do at the department is to have a strong linkage be- between our national laboratories and the and the private sector, so that we can take these technologies, many of which developed at the national laboratories, and get them into the real world. Um, Secretary Perry stood up an Office of Technology Transitions to do, you know, to work on exactly that and to really try our best to be able to get these technologies in uh, into the private sector uh, so that they can so that they can be deployed. You know, from the administration's position, there's obviously a strong emphasis on early stage research, but also then with partnering with private industry so that so that we could drive down the cost uh, to make these uh, to make these technologies deployed. So, from our perspective, that's kind of how we're seeing that deployment issue. 
Another one on funding opportunities. So we talked about the Energy Storage Grand Challenge. I know the EERE does other types of funding opportunities. Last time we checked in was a couple of years ago as a solar technology, solar electronics at the time. But my question is more broad about how um, are you seeing, what kind of response are you seeing to those, those funding opportunities? Are you seeing American entrepreneurs take advantage of them? Are those hard for them to apply to? Because I've heard that it can just be a process for the startups. They don't always have the staff available. So how can you help facilitate better use of government money and getting it into people's hands? This is a, this is a perennial challenge. Um, we, we, we do get a lot of um, we get a lot of response to the funding opportunity announcements that we put out. One of the things that we try to do is um, we, we, we try to use the best tool for the job as we see it. So as in not just these funding opportunity announcements, as they're called, but also various types of prizes um, to, to be able to bring in some people that, that wouldn't necessarily apply to kind of lower the barriers to entry. Because you're, you're right. It is... Um, in the documents that we put together, the funding opportunity announcements, I read some of them on the plane here, I'll read some of them on the way home. They are 100-page documents, half of which is kind of how, it's a long flight. How, 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 you, how, how you go over, like, what you need to do to apply. Like, it is, and there, there are reasons for that. They're not bad reasons. It is a challenge to, to apply. So it is a, that's a, that is a concern for us. So... We, we try to streamline things as much as possible in an, as well as, uh, you know, use other funding mechanisms such as prizes um, as, a, as a way of attracting new people to, uh, to be able to use some of these research dollars to, uh, to drive technology forward. Yeah, that's the one thing I hear a lot from entrepreneurs is we just would like an easier way to access funding. And uh, not just from the government, comes from VC worlds as well. But, um, well and, 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 and we hear that. And we, it is we we continue to look at ways to reduce those to reduce those barriers. Um, I wish we could do that more quickly, but it's yeah, yeah. it will continue to be a it will it will continue to be an area that we are working on. My last question is about innovation. So we talked about all kinds of innovation, clean tech innovation. Uh, that's a point of tension, I think, for people in the climate space who will talk about how oil companies are appropriating that word to talk about really their own ways of enhancing oil production rather than clean tech. And it's sort of being uh, diverted maybe as and presented as a clean tech solution, these new ways of extracting oil and gas, when a lot of people would say that is not in fact clean tech, that is a way of propping up oil for the long term. How do you think about innovation? Is that innovation within the oil and gas community considered a clean energy solution in some ways to, to you and people that you work with? Or should we have different language for separating these out? The United States has led the world in terms of carbon dioxide emission reduction since 2005. One of the biggest reasons for that is something that I certainly didn't foresee, which is hydraulic fracturing leading to low-cost natural gas, low-cost natural gas, incredibly low-cost natural gas, especially as we were thinking about it 15 years ago. Uh, not just low cost, but also um, no longer having you know a lot of price price spikes around natural gas, very low cost, and driving out coal um, in in many circumstances. That has led to dramatically lower carbon dioxide emission reductions in the United States. I think that that is a good thing. Um, people might think of that as like some type of bad innovation. the The point is, we cannot always dictate where innovation comes from. You know, it, it always is not, it is not always forecastable. If you look at what EIA projected for like U.S. oil and gas production versus where we are today, you know, 10 years ago versus today, they're dramatically off. And 
that's not saying anything bad about EIA. It's just a real challenge. And so we need to take in energy innovation where we can get it and continue to drive uh, innovation forward. The, the trajectory of energy in the United States is a trajectory towards cleaner, more efficient energy overall. I mean, that has been the case for decades. Um, and uh, we believe that continued innovation is necessary to be able to to reduce all types of pollutants, as well as uh, carbon dioxide emissions in the in the future. That's the only way it's going to happen, because what is what is key at the end of the day is when these technologies, when, say, low CO2 emitting technologies are affordable, those are going to be the technologies that get deployed. And not only will they be deployed in the United States, they, they will be deployed around the world. And people say that a lot of the wind and solar is the low-cost solution, however, not in, in other countries and what they're deploying in terms of building new coal-fired power plants, not everyone there is a, there's a difference of opinion. We'll mm-hmm. put, we'll put yeah. it that way. Yeah. So when you have these low-cost solutions that that allow you to have reliable energy, that is what's going to be that's what's going to be deployed. Do you think government should focus on the newer emerging renewable energy storage type technologies rather than putting innovation dollars into fossil fuel type of innovation? Is there a distinction that you think should be made there where the government steps in? Well, I mean, as I, as I said, we don't necessarily know where these, where these new technologies are going to come from. And it is fossil fuel technology that has dramatically reduced um, CO2 emissions in the United States. I think that that is an important message for really for the rest of the world, that the United States has a, has a good it's a it's a good example in this in this area that we don't know where those innovations are going to come from. That's why the administration has an all technology, all the above approach for energy, um, to to be able to uh, make sure that we have energy that is that is affordable, that is reliable, um, but makes uh, continues to make sure that the United States is uh, is increasing our energy security over time. Great, bringing it back to energy security. Thank you so much for your time, Assistant Secretary. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Since that interview was recorded, House Democrats have raised concerns that the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy has not yet spent $823 million in funding appropriated by Congress last year. Those funds were meant to provide grants and other financial support for renewable energy, electric vehicle, and energy efficiency technologies. Political Climate reached out to the DOE for comment and was directed to Secretary Simmons' recent testimony before House subcommittees on energy and oversight, where he stated that the DOE fully intends to utilize its appropriated research funding to invest in new technologies and innovation consistent with both congressional guidance and administration priorities. Because we're focused on the Department of Energy this episode, we wanted to bring you a timely discussion with Matt Myers at EarthX Capital. Matt founded and runs the eCapital Summit, which convenes financiers, entrepreneurs, and ecosystem partners to catalyze investment in environmental solutions. Full disclosure, the eCapital Summit is part of EarthX, which is sponsoring political climate to attend the EarthX Conference and Expo in April. This interview is not part of that sponsorship, however, and has not been edited or reviewed by any outside parties. So there's that. This week, Matt Myers launched something new, the Environmental Capital Task Force, which was formed in collaboration with the DOE's Office of Technology Transitions. 
That office was formed in 2015 under Secretary Ernest Moniz with a mission to advance the economic, energy, and national security interests of the United States by expanding the commercial impact of the DOE's R&D portfolio. With the new Environmental Capital Task Force, Matt Myers and others are working with the Technology Transitions Office under President Trump to help catalyze private investment into later-stage environmentally-friendly technologies. Here's how the task force came to be and what it plans to do. So the genesis of the Environmental Capital Task Force, or the ECTF, uh, really came from me informally advising the Department of Energy's first chief commercialization officer, and I was also working um, closely with the former acting director's uh, special advisor. And at first, I was going into their offices and educating them about the funding gaps that exist in the early stages for clean tech companies. And after that, I started exploring uh, gaps and obstacles that exist at the growth and later stages for clean tech companies. I was saying that there's actually a role for the federal government in the growth and later stages. And the initial reaction was, Matt, we don't see that. That's not where the government sits. But I kept going back and uh, talking to investors and entrepreneurs, and they were telling me otherwise. So as a result, we um, ended up facilitating Chatham House rule whiteboarding sessions with the Department of Energy's Technology Transitions Office, or TTO, and RPE as part of last year's eCapital Summit. And from those whiteboarding sessions, we produced a paper that you can find uh, on the eCapital Summit website. And that paper uh, identified about a dozen uh, market-friendly opportunities for the federal government to help catalyze more private investment into growth and later stage companies and address commercialization and clean tech deployment obstacles. And so that, that paper was well received, not just within DOE, but other federal agencies and uh, the White House itself. So I'm hearing the Trump White House received that well? <laughs> they did, which uh, I guess caught me a little bit by surprise, but it shouldn't. Because if you look at the paper, it was written in a truly bipartisan voice and focusing on the economic opportunity of clean tech. And when I say clean tech, I don't just mean new energy. I mean transportation, materials, water, built environment. It's very broad. And these are really, um, quote unquote, industries of the future that we should be supporting and because th this will help drive the U.S. economy for the next century. And the paper also flagged that other countries that the administration can consider uh, the United States economic adversaries are putting a considerable amount of money into these industries of the future. Also, because we don't have a sufficient ecosystem to support uh, these companies at the commercialization and later stages, uh, other countries are coming in with FDI and more or less buying up the companies and we're losing the IP. 
Well, I find that interesting because there's been a lot of tension around this administration and whether they are willing to fund that later stage development of of clean technologies writ large, because they talk a lot about early stage development. And that's definitely been a tension among, you know, people in the climate space who say we need to really get solutions out in the field now. Brandon, I want to go to you since you were at the DOE. I mean, what do you make of the need for an initiative like this, first of all? And like, what is really the issue that you see it's addressing? And, And you can even speak to that more broadly. Like, is that something that you saw when you were at the DOE that it's a problem? 100%. I think what Matt is doing is so crucial. Uh, We need to do, there's a financing spectrum from early stage all the way to deployment uh, that needs government support. Because even on the deployment side, to get loans from a bank, they never want to do the first project. They want to see that it works and then they'll come in. So Matt's language about catalyzing private investment is really important. If the government can go first, show that it works, then the private sector can come in and finance everything beyond that, which is what happened with utility scale solar at the DOE when I was there. We did the first six utility scale solar projects. They had never existed before in this country. The banks wouldn't do it. There were people in the Obama administration that thought, oh, the free markets were crowding this out. You know, the government needs doesn't need to play this role. They were wrong. The people in the industry were telling us we cannot get financing for this because it hasn't been proven yet. And so it worked. It's a great role for the government to play. Uh, and I think what Matt is doing by organizing people behind the scenes to have those conversations with Chatham House Rules to show like, hey, this is where there are these barriers in financing. And this is where we could use a nudge from the government like these industries get in other countries is really, really important. I want to come back to Matt in just a second, but first get Shane's reactions. I mean, we hear a lot about, you know, the Trump administration pulling back on various types of environmental regulations. Do you think this this piece around innovation and innovating through the DOE could legitimately see traction under the Trump administration in maybe ways that Democrats didn't even think of? Is this an, a ripe area for opportunity from, from your vantage point? I mean, from a strictly political perspective, I, I think it is insofar as that Republicans uh, are claiming the mantle of innovation as sort of a, a contrary approach to to regulation or capping emissions or something like that. One of the things you know that I experienced on, on Capitol Hill and I learn a lot more about now when I talk to Brandon about his experience in the administration is Congress doesn't always either, you know, have the, the, the technical expertise to understand or a full sort of um, uh false data set to assess what what the White House and Department of Energy is doing. So, for example, I heard, you know, a lot about Solyndra and some of the other sort of of headline um, grabbing items. But I don't think I ever really knew when we were combing through, you know, ARPA-E or EERE budgets, these 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 innovation departments within uh, the Department of Energy. I don't think I really fully understood what they were trying to do, why they needed the capital uh, and how they were allocating it. Congress, you know, appropriates on a line item basis. And so I actually think a better um, a better understanding and some of what Matt's doing will obviously help help us get there. But a better understanding of why exactly uh, the administration, any administration, needs the money, what it's going to do. And I think even if, if folks in the Trump administration understood that a lot of this was deploying technology that would align with the Republican you know, talking points on how to address climate, uh, it would be helpful. I still think those, those traditional political barriers are there. Uh, this sounds like government waste, social welfare. Uh, we don't care about climate with certain parts of the, the conservative base. But I think um, facilitating these discussions would be very helpful in at least getting people to say, we can't be for innovation and against it. So let's figure out you know, what early stage um, technologies we're willing to support and then how we can fit that into our broader narrative. Yeah, and and the commercialization technologies that that they're willing to support too, uh, not just early stage. Um, 
Matt, what are some of the specific suggestions that you have? Uh, great question. So during our first meeting, uh, I selected two topics to focus on. The first was foreign competition. And uh, when I sat down with a group of, let's say, center to right think tanks last September in D.C., uh, they looked at the paper and they said, Matt, we get it. There's a problem here in terms of what other countries are doing and what we're not but we need to have the data around that. So we had a great conversation around how to aggregate and analyze that data and tell a story with it so that the government and also the general public can really understand what's happening globally. I think that's really important. Also really most excited about is we, we focus on the foreign competition piece, but what everybody was really, really interested in was a manufacturing incentives pillar. and. So a lot of these companies, especially when they're hard tech, a big issue that they have or an obstacle they have with commercializing is getting their first orders in. Uh, because a lot of U.S. manufacturers are SMEs and uh, they either uh, don't have the equipment to, to, to fulfill the order or um, they're not able to provide a competitive price point at a lower quantity. And as a result, early stage companies, clean tech companies, the hard tech ones are forced to go abroad, specifically China. And so they'll, they'll offshore their first order. And so uh, therefore that manufacturing as they scale will take place there. But not only that, that's a, that's a really crucial point for IP loss. So we were, we were looking at how to address that issue and ultimately keep these technologies in the United States, have them manufactured in the United States, have resulting job creation occur in the United States and the GDP growth that goes along with it. And Julie, I wanna circle back on a little bit of, of what Matt was talking about and what you were talking about a moment ago with you know differentiating early stage um, to commercialization. I think that is a much bigger hurdle with Republicans. I mean, we, we have always thought, I have always believed that the government certainly serves a role in demonstrating technology, but capital is much better at determining which technology should come to market. Now, I think what we have to do to, to motivate government, uh, both parties to act a little bit more is the why, right? So if, if the why is making money, then I think what conservatives, including myself, are going to say is if there's money to be made, capital will find it and they'll commercialize these technologies. But if the why is foreign competition, as Matt just talked about, if the why is uh, GDP growth, domestic manufacturing jobs, if the why is because we care about climate change and we want to address it, then you can start to have, I think, a more thoughtful conversation. And that's what I think I'm seeing coming from the Republican Party, at least in the last couple of weeks. But I, I can't swear to that quite yet. I believe that everybody whether they're in department of energy or in the white house or on this podcast can agree that we all want to see the american economy do well and i believe as i'm sure everybody on this podcast believes that clean tech is going to be a big part of that story over the next century so if we can all work together and make it an economic issue i think that will get a lot more traction on both sides of the aisle and within the administration because it truly is well one i think maybe 
upside or it's also a frustration from my view on the Democratic side is that, you know, we keep hearing this. If, if we only talk about it in terms of the economy and job creation, you know, it'll foster this bipartisanship. Every Democrat I know has been talking about this in the framework of job creation for many, many, many years. The every time Barack Obama talked about this, he and talked about threats. it. That, yeah, that's talked about too. exactly. He talked, you know, talked about it in terms of job creation. Every plan that these presidential candidates have put out on climate has led with job creation. The Green New Deal is a job creation program for the economy wide. So. Democrats are w ready and willing to compromise and, you know, and and talk about this in terms of job creation. We've been doing it so, for so Brandon, over a decade. I, I, I got to jump in here because I think there's more we could possibly say, but we've got to wrap it up. I think we agree that, you know, there is a need for uh better uh, commercialization of, of new technologies. And Matt, sounds like your initiative is trying to get at that thorny issue. So thanks very much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. And that is where we'll leave this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Political Climate on your favorite podcasting platform. And if you listen on Apple, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review. Thanks for tuning in and until soon.